Hi, this is Tom Chapman. Welcome to my virtual barbershop. In 2014, I lost a friend to suicide and I didn't even know he was suffering. This opened my eyes to mental health and the impact that it can have. It was a devastating time and I asked myself many, many questions. Why, mostly, but also what if? What if I'd realised he was struggling and asked him? Then, what if he'd said, yes, I am struggling and I'm suicidal? Would I have known what to do? No, is the honest answer, I wouldn't. But this led me to founding the charity, the Lions Barber Collective a charity to raise awareness for mental health and suicide prevention and also train hair professionals to have the confidence and know how to recognise the signs someone is struggling, ask great and direct questions, listen with empathy and without judgement and finally give them the knowledge to help them find the help they need. This award-winning endorsed training is called Barber Talk and this is why I've decided to let you listen in on the conversations I have in my chair with my clients and this podcast is the same name, Barber Talk, Tales from the Chair. This podcast will hopefully showcase that the barber or hairdresser's chair is a powerful place to have these conversations, something most of you will be able to relate to, I'm sure. We've got some great clients coming in today, but without further ado, I need to get ready for my next client and that hair does not sweep itself. See you later, mate. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye. You're right, Rick. Um, who's my next client coming in? Well, I think you're going to like this guy, actually. It's Chris Kirkland. You like your football, don't you, Tom? Oh, fantastic. Chris Kirkland, um, ex-Liverpool and England goalkeeper. He does a lot for mental health as well now. I know he does stuff for Liverpool Foundation. And I know he's actually struggled with mental health himself. Uh, well, he can tell you all about it right now. Do you, do you want a drink? Yeah, I'd love one, please, mate. Tea or coffee? <laughs> Have a coffee, please. Black, no sugar. All right, here it comes. Here's Chris. Hi Chris, how's it going? Good to see you. Do you want to come and take a seat over here on the barber chair for us? I certainly will. Brilliant. So what are we going to do to your hair today? Uh, whatever you can, I'm going to leave it totally up to you. I've not, I've not got the best uh, design for hair, so I'm going to leave it totally in your hands. Nothing too mahiping or anything like that, or yeah. skinhead, but Brilliant. Yeah, nice no problem, Chris. So Chris, obviously uh, yeah, being a professional footballer is something that most boy, young boys dream of. I was a goalie when I was a kid as well. Uh, my dad was a goalie when he was a kid. Um, I used to play for a, a team called South Celtic in, in Kent. And then we moved to the Isle of Man. And the level of football in the Isle of Man was pretty um, pretty low compared to Kent. So that kind of my dreams of that professional footballer route kind of faded away. But, you know, you, I always think that being a uh, goalkeeper is probably one of the most sort of pressured places, positions to play on the pitch. Yeah, you can't really make a mistake without everyone being on your back. Um, and you know everything about uh, pressure in that sense with your high-level performance. And also, you were the, uh, the the most expensive goalkeeper when you signed for Liverpool back in 2001, yeah. was it? How was 2001, that? 2001, yeah. I mean, I, I was an outfield player when I was growing up, so you know, I'd never been in goal. Uh, I was an outfield player, never, never any good. I was always on the bench for local teams, and I was on the bench for Barway, where we used to live. For many years, as an out, this was when I was 13, as an outfielder, I was on the bench and the goalkeeper got injured. And because I was the only one on the bench, we had no other subs, <laughs> I had to go in goal. And that's how it started. We made some good saves. Um, and then the manager afterwards said, look, you know, the lad broke his arm, the keeper, so he's going to be out for, for a long time. So the manager said, look, you've done great today. Would you stay in goal for us for the rest of the season? And that's how it, that's how it started off. And I only found out years after that after that game my dad had the bet that I'd play for England in goal before I was 30 so he put it on the net he put it on the next day uh, which I never knew anything about I only found out about the bet two days before it actually actually come in when I was uh, with the England squad so we played on the Wednesday and I only found somebody got wind of it in the press and only found out two days before so my dad never never told me he did the bet 
No way. That's a, that was a good uh, bit of luck for him. Paid out there, didn't he? Shows that he believed in you, though. What was the what was the pressure like being like being a goalie, being that last man? I mean, when I was I get asked this a lot. When I was younger, it didn't bother me at all. You, yeah. you just care for it. You when you're young, you just want to play. You want to train. Yeah, no, I was just obsessed with football, and I was young. And it wasn't until I was over thirty really that. You know, you slow down a little bit. You're not as quick as you was. You're not as sharp as you was. And and some of the games you're playing, that's when I started to think about it a little bit more. And the pressure obviously builds in when you think about things. Like when I was at Wigan and we were more or less near the bottom of the league and battling relegation every season. So, you know, the thought of being relegated and it's not just being relegated, it's what happens to your club. You know, yeah. it, it gets ripped apart. People lose the jobs that have been there for years. So I became very conscious of that when I was at when I was at Wigan, which brings brings its own pressures. But yeah, listen, goalkeeping is the most unforgiving position you can play. You know, you can have great games, but one mistake and you get slaughtered for it. Which is, I was never on social media when I played, and I, and I made that decision earlier on because we see the way social media is it's it's a cruel cruel place you can use it for the good which obviously you're doing and I try to do as well with certain things but it is in general poison so I was never on social media and I never read the papers just just you know just because again you know I don't think many people read papers now but back then obviously the people the, you know I never never read any of that just purely focused on on football and, and my family but I, I was good at I had to separate it then. So instead of like, you see a lot of managers, a lot of players are 24-7, the constant football, 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 never switch off. And I didn't like that at all. I needed to break free from all that. So, you know, when I was off, generally off on a Wednesday and a Sunday, sort of walk the dog miles, do stuff as a family. But when I come home from training, I'd, I'd managed to switch the attention to the family. And, and, and that's what helped me to cope with the pressure. Instead of constantly thinking about, right, training tomorrow, I've got games Saturday, it can send you to bad places and constantly worrying and you're not really then living your normal life with your family. So uh, I managed to do that quite well. Um, obviously, at the end, there was, there was issues which we'll talk about. But yeah, I think I, I think I coped pretty well with that. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there. I think that's something that a lot of people could probably take away as well. You know, you talking about separating your life from your job and separating your life from um, social media. And like, like you said, now it's very, very... Um, we it's constant isn't it we don't have an escape route there's so many points of contact and there's so many different routes to people to contact you through all the different social media platforms people feel like they've got to be on that all the time i can't even imagine what it must be like to be a professional footballer in the in the spotlight all the time and and fans almost feeling like they own you and i see some of the stuff i mean i'm an arsenal fan myself personally but i see the stuff that goes on and you know trending mustafi was trending the other day because he might be moving on they're talking about cancelling contracts and the abuse they get sent out there it's just um it's unbelievable so i think there's something to be done something to be said for everybody what you know what you said you, there you've got to be clever you, you spot on but a, a lot of people on social media don't help themselves. And I've seen a perfect example this morning on um, Holly and Phil. There was this media influencer. She moved out. She was in Singapore, moved out to Dubai uh, to, to, because she said it was through work commitments and PT and stuff like that. But then she's posting pictures on beaches, on yeah. outside hotels and stuff like that. So you've got to be so careful what you put on social media because you'll get hammered. You'll get hammered anyway. But then there's a lot of people, a lot of footballers, they make things a lot worse because of what they're putting on. You know, they're putting pictures of a brand new car and oh, I got this car yesterday. There's people yeah. that can't afford cars. There's people that have to walk everywhere. So yeah. you've got to be so careful. what you. And I'm very, very conscious what I put on social media. 
Um, obviously, with the family with Lucy, you try and bring your, your kids up the right way. I've been brought the right way. But yeah, I, I check and double and triple check everything before I post it on social media because it just takes one stupid post or one you know, um, selfish post and you open the floodgates to a lot of abuse then. I mean, talking about pressure and, and being on the pitch and when, when I was younger and I was watching football, I remember you guys being in the Champions League final, but you never played in that final, did you? Was it was an injury you had um, and I, I've had I've had looks into that and I wondered why it wasn't you played. Obviously, it was an injury and there was something to do with the medal as well. Someone said the, the, the guy who played in goal for you, I don't even remember his name, offered the, offered the medal to you. Is that right? What? Scott Carson, yeah. So I played in... Um, Played in a lot of the early rounds. Obviously, played against Olympiacos in the uh, in you know everyone remembers that game yeah. where Stevie scored in the 88th minute, and, and then I got a bad back injury, so I ended up having a back operation, yeah. which uh, I carried on for as long as I could with it, um, but it just got too much work. I couldn't move, and it was starting to affect my performances, which is not obviously great for the team. So yeah, I had to difficult decision to have the back operation. I was out in Istanbul, though we all travelled out there. And I, listen, I've been a fan of Liverpool all my life. My first game was when I was seven years old standing in the cop and you know my dad we used to get the bus up from Leicester and um, so I was there as a fan then uh, but yes yeah, Scotty he was on the bench Scott Carson was and he said look yeah. you've been played in most of the rounds you've, you know you've played your part in this you deserve this medal more than me which is me and Scotty have always been friends we grew up yeah. you know playing the England teams together and stuff That's and I just right, said this yeah. and people and people say well why don't you take it but you can, and this probably sound bad, but you can play in all the rounds, all the games, the semi-final, everything. But if you don't play in that final, because the finals are unique, one-off game. Yeah, of course. You either win or you, you either win or you lose. You know, there's no drawing or anything like the previous round. So I just thought that, you know, I just didn't feel as though I deserved it because I didn't play in the final. And, and even though I played a lot in the other rounds and, and the games, I just it's not the same when you don't play in the final. You're not part of that game. That yeah. one game where it's win or lose, and and that's it. So. Yeah, but I, t- I said thanks a lot. But that was Scotty. I mean, I'd have done the same thing and I think a few of us would have done as well. But I was meant to get a medal. Um, but Rafa Benitez, he had loads of staff with him and I'm not the biggest fan of Rafa. Um, <laughs> and he gave it to one of his staff. So he gave my medal really? to him. Really? Yeah. He, he oh, kept, scandal. Yeah, he kept a few medals and sort of did what he wanted with them. So, um but I mean, you know, I'd have got one, but I'd have probably give it to Charity or something like that. I'll give it to one of my <laughs> Yeah, you probably would have known you, yeah. Yeah, probably, yeah. yes. But, so, but yeah, that was, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was not nice, you know, but yeah, it was um, my time at Liverpool come to an end when Rafa could really, he wanted a uh, foreign goalkeeper. I mean, this list of the time, Pepe Reina, so it wasn't a bad shout. Yeah, at all. it was all right, wasn't he? Um, yeah, my, my game slipped backwards. I'd go up a certain way at Coventry with Steve Grudovic, Jim Bly, hard work repetitions, yeah. up downs. I was a big lad, so I had to do a lot of work to keep my sharpness and Rafa coming at Liverpool and the Spanish goalie coach come in and just completely changed my training. Just I was coming off pitches like I would be out there for two and a half hours someday and literally not done anything. Not oh, sharp. Really? Going, no, going into games thinking I've done no training and I've not sharp. My form dipped in the end, so I, was, I knew I had to leave Liverpool, but I knew when I left, I had to go somewhere with a British goalie coach. Yeah. To get me back to to what I was what I was knew I could do to got me you know to get me back to what got me to Liverpool in the first place. So went to Wigan, Paul Jewell and and Gary Walsh and things just clicked. And 2006 2010 was the best part of my career, the best I've played football wise. It must have been a big thing for your mental health as well. Like getting there, um, obviously you know Scott Carson, fantastic. He offered you that, but you weren't allowed, you, you couldn't play in the game. It must have been devastating for you. You know Champions League finals, big as it gets with clubs 
for club football. You couldn't be there for that. And then this, you know, this thing happens where Pepperoni's come in, you're not getting the training, you realise, and you're starting to be more aware of yourself and that, and then having to find somewhere else. That must have been difficult on your mental health. You know, It was tough. It was tough. Um, and when you think about it, you know, when the problems come out later on, at the time, you, mental health wasn't talked about. So you just thought, oh, because well, yeah. I'm, I'm not playing, I'm a little bit down or stuff like that. I mean, we used to, me and another lad, um, Paul Harrison, he, me and him used to go down the local field and train each other after training because we'd, we'd train with Liverpool but do nothing. So we would jump in the car and go and train each other on the field, um, which yeah. would never happen these days. But, you know, we, we where we used to live yeah. was a farmer's field and it was quite private. So he, he used to let us go in there and train on his... Listen, it, was, it wasn't great at all. It was all muddy and bouncy and everything like that. <laughs> we just did... We worked as hard as we could on short stuff, just trying to keep a sharpness there, which you have to do because I felt yeah. myself slipping backwards. But that's a great thing as well. That goes to prove a point as well of, of, you know, you have to sometimes take it into your own hands and you can change it. You know, you control your own thoughts, your own actions. So it's really important for you to, you went and you did something about it. You said, right, I, I need to do something. So I'm going to go and do this. We're going to work together and we're going to go and make the best of a, of a lumpy, muddy field and uh, keep ourselves yeah. as sharp as possible. You, you know, and you, you talked about being in your in your 30s and becoming more aware of mental health is that do you think that's because you became more self-aware you become more self-aware of yourself and your emotions and your feelings or um i mean I, I didn't start to suffer with mental until 2012 so we moved up here in 2001 i was at liverpool for five years wigan just down the road for six years so for 11 years my life was i knew exactly what i was doing i was mm. 15 minutes from home um you know lucy come along in 2006 i could drop her off at nursery in the morning and then school pick her up after training Brilliant. you know i wasn't missing anything and stuff like that and then all of a sudden moving to sheffield I did, we didn't move because lucy was in school so i commuted which is a tough commute from liverpool it's not far but you know i was setting off at like five in the morning like people have to do you know to, to get to work but i was getting there for seven there was no one there you know then i was getting home late i was worried about traffic you know snakes head and wood pass a, a nightmare journey to get to sheffield and there's always accidents on there and always delays and traffic so my life just completely flipped 180 and i was missing stuff back home i was missing you know school plays i was missing socializing and everything like that because when i got back home i literally didn't want to do anything i just shut the gates and i was constantly thinking right i've got to get up at quarter five tomorrow uh, again so i'd go bed early on your life becomes just traveling and sleeping, traveling and sleeping. And, you, you know, and for three years, it was, it gradually got worse and worse. Um, but again, didn't really know what it was because back then, what I'm talking about, eight years, nine years ago, yeah. mental health wasn't talked about. It's always been there, yeah. but, you know, you didn't know, really know what it was, didn't understand it. There was nothing certainly on the TVs. And, you know, I mean, obviously, suicide has been, I mean, my dad's dad committed suicide back in the 80s, really? which I never knew about. Um, for mental health. My dad suffered with it for 40 years and only found out that when I come out and said. So it's always been there, but never never talked about. So 2015, I was going to sign again for Sheffield Wednesday, but I was I was in a bad, bad way. And I just didn't want to play anymore, didn't want to train. But I thought getting closer to home would reverse the cycle. So I, I turned down a new deal at Sheffield Wednesday and signed for Preston just up the road. But I was too far gone then and my mind was just constantly racing in a mess and had to end ended up having to retire in the end through mental health because I just lost the passion for football and, and just felt so bad and didn't want to do anything at all that uh, I knew I had to stop and, and ask for help and it wasn't until I asked for help that you know things started to get better. But I also I also think it's so it must be so difficult for you as a as a footballer who's got 
this perceive many perceive happiness as fame and fortune or me playing a sport for a living playing for the boyhood club so i always think it must be so much more difficult for somebody in that position to then say i'm struggling because people will sort of go well how can you be how can you be struggling you've got everything that i'd ever want well that comes back down to again to people are crawling their social media and stuff like that so but yeah you don't think about any of that when you when you when you're going through it you just you just in, I mean, I always said it was like I was in a glass steel box and I was trapped in there and I could see myself on the outside wanting to get out and, you know, talk to myself and help myself, but I couldn't get out of this box. And, you yeah. know, you're watching yourself live a different life, basically. Um, you know, I was, I was obviously a, a husband and a dad and I was, but I wasn't really there for them for five years. You know, I was there, but I was living in a day, you know, days really. Um, so it was it was tough tough years and yeah it wasn't until I asked for help that things got a lot better I think it's only really been in the last 12-18 months mental health is now talked about every day and rightly so it's on the TV it's on the radio you know there's something more or less every single day and obviously what you're doing now is is highlighting it even more so now it's you know it's always been acceptable it's never been an shame or embarrassment to suffer with mental health but people now feel more comfortable um, talking about it and particularly during this time at the minute I mean mm -hmm what an horrendous time to be, you know, to be, to be living in at the minute. I mean, they say one in four, I've never agreed with one in four. No. I've always, it's more like three in four for me. And yeah. definitely after this situation, it will be, you know, probably more or less everyone will, will struggle at some point. Um, you know, my daughter, she had a couple of bad days last week, you know, missing school and mm. stuff like that. So everyone's really, really struggling at the minute. And the more things like this and the more, you know, services available to people, they're going to be inundated with stuff now. I mean, the footballer one coming back, I mean, I didn't come out and speak just for footballers. Yes, oh, football are great, you know, for what it's given me and, and the life it's given me, but I did it for everybody, for, you know, Joe Bloggs down the street, every, everybody. Um, footballers, three years ago, four years ago, there was 160 contacted the PFA, past and present players saying that really struggling. Last year, it was up to 1,600. Wow. So in comparison, you then put that into normal day life yeah. and, you know, you use that comparison in everyday life. It's, yeah, um, yeah there's going to be a lot of people struggling. It's very scary. I think, Joe, for me, one that, that you've mentioned it there, the sort of silver lining of, of COVID for me is that I think everybody has realised that they have mental health. Everybody has realised, I think you talk about the one in four and it being more than that. And I think for a long time we've considered mental health as diagnosable specific things like PTSD, uh, depression, anxiety, suicide. But actually, I think we need to realise as physical health, we all have it. We all have a brain. We all have thoughts. We all have bad days. We all have good days. We all go through tough times. And I think that, like you said, we need to start realising that. And I, do you think that that number, that spike in the people getting in touch with PFA is just because it's uh, we're making it a bit more normal, a bit more okay, the taboo and stigma around yeah. talking about it is, is going away? Yeah. Well, it is, isn't it? It is okay. There's nothing, you know, there's no... I mean, at the time when you're going through it, you, you just, you can't, you don't, until you get to that point where you know you've got to do something about it, you don't feel like talking about it. You don't feel like, you know, you say to yourself, oh, I'll be okay next week. You know, I'll do this next week. I'll do something to make me happy. And it just doesn't work. You just keep right. slipping further and further back. But now you're right. There's just, You see it every day now on TV, um, you know, people coming out saying they're struggling and people that you have no idea, you know, you'd look at them and think, how impossible not not how they live a great life and stuff like that, but you just it's just people that you just would never expect to be struggling with mental health 
um, and there'll be a lot, lot more come out, which is really sad in a way, but it's the only way that it's going to get other people yeah. to own, uh, you know, to to ask for help. Yeah, definitely. I think people in, in your position or people that are respected by Benny, if they talk about it, then the, the impact is huge to the people that follow you. If it's okay for you to talk about it, Chris, then it's okay for me to talk about it, you know. Mm. Um, what was it? I just want to know what it's like in that in that dressing room, in the football club dressing room with lads together. Obviously, I know there's this whole thing, you know, banter and lads together and lads will be lads and we all, you know, that's the way we are. But what was that like in, in the dressing room? What, when I was going through it or just in yeah, general? Yeah, I mean, in general, almost a little bit like, what was it like before and then the comparison to when you were going through it? I mean, when, as you said, you know, a lot of stuff that goes on the dressing room, it's just, you know, particularly Liverpool and Wigan, I couldn't wait to get in there because that is part of the day that starts the day up, you know, what lads' stories, what they did last night or what they've been up to at the weekend or, you know, there was a lot of, yeah, some great characters that in, in dressing room. Lucky I've spent a lot with... Who was, um, the best, who was the best character at Liverpool then with you? Who was the, the most, the biggest character that told you the best stories? Uh, the one, I mean, Didier Man was brilliant. He was just, yeah. he just had this dry sense of humour. He was just, he was superb. He really was. But John Arnorisa, he was like, he had to be the first to everything. Like, <laughs> he had to be the first to finish his dinner, the first to get on the bus, the first to get off the bus. More competitive. And, and obviously, <laughs> obviously, as lads then would, would try and stop him. So, like, we'd get in the way or we'd, you know, would finish our dinner quickly first. And just to see him, like, he'd be like, he'd be like that. And he was, he was brilliant, John was. And the, yeah, there was, I mean, Stevie, obviously, Cara. Sammy Hippie, we had some brilliant ones at Liverpool. Uh, Jamie Redknapp and Nick Barmy were superb with me. When I moved up, they they looked after us, you know, great. They, they were brilliant. Emil Esky, very close with him now still. Um, great jersey, the keepers. But yeah, then Wigan, we had a, probably the best dressing room I've been involved in was at Wigan. When I, when I went to Wigan, you know, very British based. But we had some foreigners like Antonio Valencia, Wilson Palacios, that just were the same as us. They were just, you know, it was as though they were from from England so we had a brilliant team but we used to go out a lot uh, at the right time we used to do a lot of bonding our families used to meet up on Sundays we used brilliant. to go around houses and it was the best four years of my career on and on and off the pitch it was just yeah. uh, mad yeah and there was some there was some stuff obviously I can't say what happened in the dressing <laughs> rooms and stuff but oh my word if people yeah. seen some of it on video they'd be they'd be in hysterics but they'd be astounded as well at some of the things that went on but that's great, yeah, that, and it's. I think that's so important. You talk about there. It's like the best time of your life in that the best time of your career because you had that support network around you, you had that community around you, and I think that's something that we're losing, especially with what we're going through with COVID, what we're going through with being disconnected because we're all on our phones all the time. We think we're connected to more people, but actually, you just you just you know hit the nail on the head there. The best time in your career was when you had the most people around you and you felt that support group and that's all that pride. Yeah, Pride Alliance that we try and do with the Alliance Bible Collective, build that group of people. So I think that's really amazing. That that says a lot, really, from my point of view, if that's the people that you were, um, that's when you were really happiest. And we've spoken a little bit about your mental health. Um, and I just wondered, like you said, it, was, it, it wasn't until you asked for help, but who did you go to and ask help? I left Preston. I, I shouldn't have signed um, for Berry. I went to Berry just down the road again. Um, I shouldn't have signed for him because I was, I was in a real bad way. I was petrified. I've always been a home person. The thought of being away from home get very anxious. We were going away pre-season to Portugal with Berry, and I, I, just, I was dreading it. I just didn't want to go. Somehow got on the plane, went out there. Second day out there, I was just, I just didn't want to be there at all. And I just couldn't wait to get to sleep. Didn't want to wake up in the mornings. I, we stayed in these apartment blocks. I was on the top floor, went out onto the roof, you know, standing on the roof and I was going to jump. And because I just got to that point where 
it was painful. It was just so painful to be living. Um, and it was, I always said it was a seesaw. I was, um, I was either going to jump or fight back. And, and, and Leona and Lucy come straight into my head. It was as though they were pulling me back. And I rang Leona straight away. She said, look, you've got to come home. We need to get this sorted out. So I flew home the very next day. Barry knew there was an issue, but we sort of said again, because yeah. I thought I can't come out and say it's me. So we said it was Leona that was suffering. I needed to go home. She had an hospital appointment just to get me home. And then I rang Neil Mellor and said, look, I, 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 you know, this is the way I'm feeling. He went, ring the PFA. He said, yeah. the PFA have got a mental health department there, which will be out to help you. And I never knew. I never knew, even though I've been part of the PFA since 1998, when you first start playing. Um, and you always are after, as well, even when you retire, you're still part of that. And they help a lot of people now. But I rang them and said, look, I, I need help. And I'm, when I met um, Michael Bennett, who you probably know, head of the PFA, and, and that's when things started to get better. Met, seen a few counsellors. The first two or three didn't click at all. Uh, but then I found a lady in Manchester called Lorraine, and you still see her to this day. My wife's brilliant. Uh, you know, Lucy's been over to see her. She's just she, she's brilliant. So for like 18 months, two years, things got a lot better. And then it was about 2018 when, um, when 2018-19, when I just started missing football and started missing the routine. You know, something you've always done you, from an early age, from 16, you're told where to be, when to train, what to eat, you know, where you're going to be at the weekends, where to drop your cars off to fit, get the bus. It, honestly, everything's just planned out for you completely. So I started missing that, you know, and, and felt myself slipping back gradually again and thought, I can't go back to that place. So that's when I searched. Uh, obviously, the PFA have got sporting champs down in um, down south somewhere, but I rang them and said, look, I'm, I'm struggling and I need help. And they said, look, it's, it's going to be three months before we can get you in. And I said, I can't wait three months. Um, so me and Leona just got online and wanted somewhere up north, which was close to home. So I'd feel comfortable being away from yeah. home or not. So we found Parkland Place in North Wales and it was the best thing I've ever done. It was a beautiful place. Uh, I mean, I'm an ambassador for them now. So I, I go down there every couple of Wednesdays and speak to guests that are in there. And, and try and help them that way. But yeah, it was, it was the best thing. And I wasn't going to say, and I said to them, I said, look, I have a problem staying over, being away from home. And they said, look, you can travel in every day and travel home every day if you want, which was something they'd never done before, but they could see I was anxious about it. But after two nights, two days, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I, I love this. I want to stay over. So I started staying over more and more, Brilliant. you know, and uh, because at night you talk, you go down after your session, you have a group sessions in the morning, one-on-ones in the afternoon. It's long days, like very tiring, very talking a lot. And the, but then we'd all sit outside about six, seven, and this was during the summer in July, so the like light till ten o'clock, it's right by the beach. So we all used to sit out, have a cup of tea, and 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 that helped just talking again to people that were in there for different. Listen, there was people in there for all sorts, you know, trauma, addictions, abuse, yeah. everything. Obviously, we're all everything always leads back to mental health, no matter what you're suffering with. So it was, uh, yeah, so I'd still do that. And listen, I have my bad days now still, but I know what I need to do now. They teach you coping mechanisms, exercise. It's easy, you know, the two best things are exercising and talking. Simple, yeah. It's as yeah. simple as that. You know, walking, we've obviously got the walkings brilliant that we've set up, uh, which we're meant to be doing Kilimanjaro this July, but that's like a lot of things that's been put back yeah. to 2022. But we're still open to do coast to coast. And there's a lot of people on that now that have... have followers and and but they put videos on a lot of people we don't know but they you know the benefits of getting out walking talking when you're out you know even when you don't want to do it there's days when i can't i think oh, i can't be bothered to go for a walk today but if yeah. i don't I'll, I'll be worse for it 
so I know I have to do it and I know what I need to do these days to sort of keep it at bay because it's never going to go away once you've suffered with it it doesn't go away you learn to you learn to live with it in better ways and, and you learn coping mechanisms uh, totally uh, Joe I think it's like us guys are especially really good at doing we're not very good at talking sitting down one-to-one having a conversation about something serious and I think we're much better if we're doing and talking at the same time like the walking and talking stuff is absolutely fantastic and like you just said then really important thing is that you know people think we're not we're getting people to open up and talk about it. We're not educating on people, educating people about it enough about how it's going to, it's going to be there forever. It's going to be yeah. one of those things. It's like uh, a lad I know called Phil, whose hair I cut. He's a brilliant little footballer. He had loads and loads of problems, he, loads and loads of problems with his knees. And then he, he couldn't, he, he still play football with his mates, but he can't play football like he was, you know, destined to. to do really. Yeah. And then he, he, you know, I was to explain to him about the mental health thing and just saying to him, look, it's a bit like your knee. You know now with your knee, you can get up, get away with a certain amount of stuff, but you can't push it too far because it's going to damage your knee. So you can't go and play too hard or run too hard or whatever. It's the same with your mental health. Yeah, if your mental health gets damaged, it's because you were doing too much of something. You were too stressed at work. You were, you were over, your overload was too much. You were taking on too much. It's the same with that. That's your breaking point now. So you know that, okay, we go up to this. I can't go any further than that because it's going to push me a bit further. And you know how to rehab your knee. You know what kind of stretches and things. It's the same thing, isn't it, with your mental yeah. health? You know, if you go and walk and you exercise, you get out there. And you said the great thing there, talking to each other is just such an undervalued thing and being heard. Like being yeah. listened, being listened to is so important as well. Yeah. Um, you're a massive, you're a massive advocate for mental health now. I mean, I've followed you online. I've seen what you've been doing, and you've been great to you know, get in touch with me and you know come and yeah, see you offering FaceTime calls to people, you know, to help them out. And I just think little things like that are just so uh, such a, a massive, huge difference maker for some people. What what made you decide to sort of offer that out to people? Well, I mean, I got help when I needed it and I knew how much it helped me and saved my life. So, obviously, I, it helps me as well because it's sort of like my therapy still. You know, you can't just forget about it. And, and you know, so it's talking for me as well. So, it was, I did it in the first lockdown in March because, um, obviously, what we, what we went through then, we thought we'd be out of it. But it was so surreal at the time as well in the first lockdown. So, I thought, what can I do to – because I've, I've got to be active. I, I need to be active a lot of the time. You know, I'm always out and doing stuff. I thought, right, I'm obviously going to be in the house, we're on lockdown, what can I do to keep my mind active? And I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot of people thinking the same, a lot of people struggling. So I thought, right, let's do some FaceTime calls to people. And people say, well, why do FaceTime? I said, because you can speak to them on the phone, but you can't really see what they're thinking. Mm. When you speak to someone face-to-face like we are now, you can see the expression, you can actually see, you know, if they are really struggling and help them that way. So I did did them in March. uh, And then I put a message out just before Christmas, because obviously we, we were going to go into lockdown, it was inevitable. Um, you know, far too late. We should have been in it in November. We yeah. spoke about it before, but I just thought, you know, January blues, we all know January after, particularly after the Christmas we had in a time we in, I thought, right, let's do it again. And um, so, yeah, I've been doing them every day, spend a couple of hours every afternoon um, calling people up on FaceTime and, and a lot of messages as well. Some people don't want to speak on FaceTime, so they message, type, you know, some text messages, DMs and all that sort of stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, I said I'd be, I'd get through everyone, but I'm not I'm not going to be able to to get through everyone, unfortunately. So, because yeah. um, there's been a lot, you know, a lot of a lot of requests. So yeah, I spoke to a lot of people. Some of the calls are really really hard and stuff that I've not been through. So so I try and steer them in the right direction to different services. You know, the Samaritans is a great one, obviously, but you know, abuse lines and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that because. 
yes, it all comes back to mental health that I couldn't speak about because I've not been through some of the stuff people have been through. Yeah. So I just try to say, listen, there is people there for you. These are the numbers, you know, reach out. You've done, you've spoke to me now. You can go and speak to other people yeah. that are better off than me to talk to you about this stuff. And so, yeah, there's been some incredibly hard ones, but there's been some brilliant ones as well, really funny ones that have perfectly <laughs> during the day. You know, particularly kids, when you bring kids up and stuff like that, the parents, you know, some of the stuff the kids say, it's, it's gold. So, um, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's been, and it's past the time as well for me. You know, when we got pulled into lockdown, I mean, I think it's gone pretty quick. Um, yeah. you know, this last month um, and, and hopefully the rest will. So, yeah, it's just trying to keep myself active and keep myself busy and with a foundation work, we're doing a lot for Liverpool Foundation, um, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of online stuff, a lot of deliveries. So, you know, I, I volunteer to all the delivering to houses and stuff because it just gets you out of the house, keeps you busy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parallels there of what we're, what we're doing with the, the teaching people just to be able to listen to people and give them that opportunity. And then once they've, once they've spoken to you, like you said, they can then go and talk to other people that you can signpost them to, which is absolutely fantastic. And you actually just started then talking about the uh, Liverpool uh, Foundation, which I was going to ask you a little bit about, because I think that's just fantastic um, that, they, that the clubs have these charity arms, um, you know, down here, extra. I've been doing some stuff with Extra Football Club with that as well. We did some, well, obviously not for a while now, but you know, and I think sport is such a great way to get to get to men because it's a space. You know, you can go to. I quite often say we we do Lions Barber pop up shops where we go and we cut hair at spaces where men gather and just give them a free haircut. They sit in the chair and we open up a conversation around mental health. And I always think that football is such a great place to get hold of men because they're so emotionally charged. You know, you can have two 25-stone tattooed blokes, shirtless, yeah. hugging each other and crying in the cup final in a stadium in front of, you know, in front of 60,000 people. But if they did that yeah. outside, down the pub, it'd be considered weird and, uh, yeah. and unusual. So I just think the football, the fact that there's things like the Liverpool Foundation is just incredible. I mean, could you tell me a little bit more about like how you got involved and what the kind of things they do? Yes, I mean, again, so when I was sort of after I'd been into Parkland Place, I'd come out feeling good, but I needed then something to do, you know, I needed to be active, I needed to, I wanted to, I just didn't want to sit at home every day or go playing golf every day, I needed to be active, so I went down to one of the kick sessions down near Anfield and must admit, I thought that's all they did, I thought they put some training sessions on for kids, you know, they do bits and bobs in the area, so I thought, you know, let's find out, let's real find out. So I spoke to Matt Parrish, and then I went and met Gemma and Katie, who were like the, the heads of it, and they showed me everything they did, and I was embarrassed. I really was because I never knew just exactly what they did across Merseyside. And I've lived up here for 20 years. You know, they run 26 different programs all over Merseyside: vulnerability, employment programs, coaching. You know, um, kick it out stuff, everything Brilliant. you can imagine. They they do. And I, I about three or four hours I was in there and the list, you know, they showed me everything. They said, what, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely I would. And they said, well, well which one do you want to do? And I said, I want to do them all. So, you know, <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to be involved with everyone. So now that's what I do. I go to different play, like before lockdown, we went into schools. We did a lot in schools, in classrooms, which was brilliant. Uh, obviously, I had to be careful with the COVID restrictions and stuff. But yeah, so and then coaching, but obviously all that's stopped now. So mm. can't wait for it to, to start back up again. But we're doing as much as we can. You know, I was on calls this morning. I've got another one after. We're doing, we're just starting up a podcast actually. Brilliant. So right. they want me to, um, for all the grassroots coaches and the coaches at Liverpool Football Club and then everyone else, when people like, obviously not got the chance to listen to like legends of the game and managers of the game, they want me to host it. So the first one's next next February uh, next Thursday and I've got Harry Redknapp so he's going to be the first one on it 
which I think for the coaches will be amazing for them. So, yeah, a lot of ideas coming up. I mean, obviously restricted to what we can do at the minute, but the food bank stuff, deliveries, they, they, they're just an amazing organisation and they don't shout about it, uh, but people need to know exactly what they do because yeah. I never yeah. knew some of the programmes that they did and other people probably didn't. So now we're trying to get the message out, look, these are all the programmes, come and join in. If there's any way we can help anyone, you know, there's knife crime and all that sort of stuff. So trying to get kids off the streets by playing, like you said, football is one of the yeah. biggest levelers. You know, it just gets everyone together, gets everyone talking. So, and with it being Liverpool Football Club with the reach and the power that it's got all over the world, they're, uh, they're special people to work for. So yeah, really looking forward to it. And people say, well, why are you not involved full-time with football? Because... You could be in a job for like four months and get sacked and then you're moving yeah. here, there and everywhere. And I'm not, I don't want to do that at the minute. I get more satisfaction, a lot more satisfaction from doing this with the foundation. I'm still involved in football. Yeah, right. You know, with Colne FC and part-time and stuff. But yeah, I like doing a lot of different things to keep my mind stimulated. And that sounds perfect because you're all over the place. You're interacting with lots of different places all, all the time. You're still involved with football. You're still involved with Liverpool. They're one of the biggest clubs in the world and doing fantastic at the moment, really, aren't they? Um, in yeah. recent years, they've been brilliant. I've got to yeah. say, they've been since the problems come out when they first come out. They contacted me, said, "Look, anything we can do for you, uh, let me know." Um, the, the club have just been, as you would expect, it's Liverpool Football Club, but they've gone above and beyond um, helping me and, and my family. So, yeah, having their support is. It's a big, big lift and a big weight off my shoulders knowing that they're there for us. It's brilliant. It's brilliant stuff. Well, just uh, finishing up with your hair, to put a little bit of product in it now, Chris, for you. Um, let's grab a mirror. Um, so yeah. what, what do you think What do you think of the back of your haircut? Very nice. Yeah, nice and nothing to... Um, yeah, I just like a little trim at the back. I don't like making it into any shapes or anything like that. Or Nothing yeah, too, too serious, mate. Too, nothing too, too skinny, skinhead-ish. So yeah, yeah no spot on, mate. Just a little bit of gel. I'm nearly forty now, so I, I can't pull off too much gel. <laughs> okay, mate. Yeah, so you. just a little bit. Perfect. Thank you ever so much, mate. I'm just going to take you over to the receptionist. I'll leave you with Rick, and he'll take your bill for you now. I look forward to seeing you on your next appointment. Take Top care, man. See you soon. Thank you so much for visiting my virtual barbershop today, and I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you enjoy your haircut too. If you or anyone you know is struggling with their mental health, please take a look at the fabulous hubofhope.co.uk for all the resources in your area. I'm already looking forward to your next visit, but in between cuts, I would appreciate it if you could help Barber Talk Podcast out massively and give this podcast a review and five stars on iTunes to help the podcast get more visibility. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow so you are the first to hear the conversations from the barber chair. Oh yeah, and don't forget to book him with Rick for your next appointment. Miss you already. See you in the chair soon.